0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stemcell. Well,
1: thank you for the invitation. Um, It's great to... um, connect virtually even though we can't connect in person. I was looking forward to enjoying some of another nice weather down in uh, Southern California, um, but maybe another time. So today I'll talk about uh, some work that's been going on in my lab, really since the beginning of my lab. Um, and We've always been focused on uh, what is the first part here, which is bioengineering early CNS morphogenesis, Um, taking organoid technology and trying to make it something that can be biomanufactured, reproducible, and as closely mimetic of the human system as possible. And then uh, we've made some progress in that, which has allowed us to start applying uh, the early progress we've made And that is to create a tool that can be used uh, for looking at uh, neural tube defect risk, and I'll talk about what those are, as well as uh, we started to look at developmental neurotoxicity as an assay with that tool as well. So uh, before I begin, I have a conflict of interest. Um, I'm I'm new to this. Uh, We just started uh, this startup um, in May. I'm sorry, in March. Uh, and so i uh, new to doing these type of slides, but uh, I'm basically the interim manager for a startup, which is trying to commercialize uh, the Rosetta Ray technology um, that's going to be presented in this, uh, in this talk. So the human central nervous system, I'm not sure the audience and how familiar everybody is with CNS development. So I'm going to start with sort of a broad overview, uh, very 300 level uh, view of CNS development, enough to make you uh, dangerous at understanding what I'm talking about. Um, But the central nervous system is really uh, thought to be one of the most complete, uh, complex tissues in the human body, and some say uh, most complex piece of matter in the entire solar system. Um, Looking at just sort of gray cell uh, sagittal slices of the CNS, you can see as you go through the brain through the spinal cord, there are many different regions of this tissue. So it's not one homogeneous structure, it's actually a conglomerate of many different tissues. They're all precisely uh, connected to one another Um, and that connection gives you the functional uh, output of the central nervous system. And if you look at any one particular small region of the CNS, you'll find that uh, the cells that are in that that anatomical region are specific to that region. Um, And the cytoarchitecture of that tissue is specific to that actual tissue, uh, allowing it to have the um, contribution to the overall CNS uh, function. Now, this regionality of the central nervous system shows up primarily uh, uh, in disease um, for sort of the lay audience. So, there are known diseases that you commonly have heard of that are region specific. Uh, For example, Parkinson's disorder uh so you have uh the main target cell type which are dopaminergic neurons a specific type of neuron within the central nervous system and you have clusters of these at all different regions so these is a9 a8 a10 various different clusters of dopaminergic neurons throughout the uh forebrain and midbrain however the disease really targets the a9 substantia nigra cluster um and uh the understanding as to why that occurs is 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 not uh, well understood Um, But you really have decimation of the dopaminergic population in this area, and that leads to uh, the issues uh, or um, symptoms of Parkinson's disorder. The same can be said for other neurodegenerative disorders, such as uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, where you have uh, the target cell type in that disease um, is the motor neuron. These are the sole pathway that the central nervous system connects with the rest of the body. Um, And you have motor neurons that project from all regions of the hindbrain through the spinal cord to various tissues uh, of the body, and in that disease, really the ones that project to the limbs uh, are the ones that degenerate first. And uh, in a lot of patients, the motor neuron connections that project to other regions, such as the eye as well as the um, gut system, uh, those persist throughout the end stages of the d- of the disease. And it's not well understood as to why there's uh, difference in the pathology in different types of motor neurons. So, this regionality is uh, very interesting um, and sort of highlights the diversity of cell and tissue types within the central nervous system, uh, the eye, the brain, and spinal cord. And when we use IPS cells, uh, that is reprogramming somatic cells uh, using a, a genetic trick that's well-known now, in order to redifferentiate them into various cell types, if we want to see the pathology of that disorder, we actually need to make the uh, neuronal or glial cell types that are specific to various regions of the CNS that are affected. Um, otherwise, we don't see the same type of disease phenotype. And this is useful for creating uh, high throughput screening models uh, to discover therapeutics that could potentially ameliorate the pathology of these disorders, Um, also you could try to, um, and people are, uh, uh, deriving the cell types that are lost in degenerative disorders and transplanting them back into uh, the patients in order to try to improve their situation. Now, overall, this, this works well, um, but when you're trying to model diseases using iPSCs, uh, you have some inherent limitations, um, and that is that while we can differentiate the cells to various regions of the CNS, the context in which they exist within the uh, dish is not biomimetic. So standard cell culture um, on hard plastic substrates um, is not biomimetic. It lacks the cell phenotype diversity. So for example, a transverse section of your spinal cord is roughly the size of your thumbnail. And so you can imagine that fits pretty well within a 12-volt plate. So within that uh, uh, tissue slice, you would have anywhere from uh, 10 to 20 different cell types. Um, And so you can imagine that they all sort of talk to each other. And so you're lacking that diversity within normal uh, tissue culture dishes. And the cytoarchitecture of of the uh, culture, of course, is not mimetic. Um, And also you have a very immature phenotype. So it's uh, an ongoing uh, question of how we can age these uh, cell types properly. So in comes uh, neural organoid technology. And really this is the cutting edge technology that we uh, use in the academic sphere to, And it's the best model we have for mimicking development of the uh, human organism. And in the central nervous system, uh, we can create various types of uh, neural organoids by culturing pluripotent stem cells as an, as an aggregate, uh, you can immerse them in an extra matrix uh, hydrogel. You don't have to, but you can, um, and uh, then culture them in a stir bioreactor. And the convective flow within the bioreactor um, causes interstitial flow within the organoid itself, allowing for a transfer of nutrients and oxygen uh, that allows the organoid to grow to millimeters inside um, with uh, limited... Uh, um, Uh, hypoxia that occurs within the center. You still get some, but it's limited and and allows large growth of this aggregate. And what you see when you look inside of that tissue is that the cells, when guided down the neural lineage, they start to spontaneously try to recapitulate uh, developmental aspects. You can get uh, formation of these sort of uh, ventricular stem zones that have layering of neurons um, on top of them. You can get all six uh, neuronal layers of the cerebral cortex. Uh, you can get all different layers of the optic cup or the, the retina. And if you allow those uh, organoids to grow uh, to very large sizes, then you can get various different tissues within the same organoid um, And uh, the organization of those tissues is quite somewhat random, uh, but you do get uh, a diversity of tissues that form. Um, and this is sort of highlighted in this particular slide where within a neural organoid, for example, you can have multiple brain regions uh, that form within that organoid. And if you guide your neural stem cells to different head to tail regions or rostral caudal regions of the central nervous system axis, you can generate cortical, midbrain, cerebellar, and spinal organoids as well. So the system is quite powerful for trying to mimic development of the central nervous system. Um, and at the micro scale, uh, the, the structures that form within these organoids do very closely mimic the structures that form uh, within normal CNS development. However, at the macro scale, uh, because of the spontaneous morphogenesis that occurs within these tissues outside of the body, so it's not receiving those cues that really orchestrate this morph- morphogenesis, uh, the tissue is, 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 is very... Um, basically a mess <laughs> in terms of a spatial organization. It doesn't recapitulate sort of the spatial patterning that you see within a developing uh, central nervous system or the developing neural tube, which is the analog for the central nervous system. And so this is a, a limitation. Um, it is a, a, a limitation um, that while you have the human uh, genome and human background within these organoids, you don't have the same type of tissue structural organization that you get within a, a, an actual model organism. Uh, this limits our ability to, to study various aspects of neurodevelopment, circuit level physiology and behavior, um, looking at things like psychiatric disorders, um, as well as uh, aging continues to be an issue. So my lab sort of looked at this uh, very early on uh, when Yoshiki Sasai was just publishing his his organoid uh, protocols in the uh, late 2000, well, about 2008. And we said, well, is there a way that we could apply engineering principles to make this a more uh, reproducible um, uh, experimental platform? And so while the central nervous system is uh, thought to be very complex, the actual quote is that it's the most organized piece of matter in the solar system. Uh, And this is from Scott F. Gilbert, a very notable uh, neurodevelopmental biologist. And what that means is that we can use uh you know the decades to century worth of neurodevelopmental biology in order to understand the players uh that are required to provide those cues to the developing organoid um, and try to create a roadmap uh for how that is done, and then try to implement that roadmap uh in a, a engineer system or as engineered as we can make it. So uh how does a CNS develop? So, in a very uh brief description. Uh, the central nervous system starts as a tube of cells. So you're looking at the chicken embryo here, my hands a chicken embryo, you're looking at the top down. Uh, so this is the neural tube. You have the head region, uh, the, the midbrain region and the spinal cord you can see down here. If you take a uh, transverse section of that embryo and l- look head on, you can see the neurotube structure here. If you stain it and zoom in, uh, you can see that it's basically made up of a single cell layer of uh, neural stem cells. We call these neuroepithelial cells. Um, and each cell has one foot on this apical portion. This will become your ventricles and the lumen of your spinal canal. And also one foot on this basal portion. This is where they deposit the extracellular matrix. Um, to create their basal membrane, and uh, this will persist throughout the development of the CNS. So very early on the CNS sort of walls itself off from other regions of the developing embryo. Now within this neural tube structure, uh, the diversity of cell types and ultimately the tissues that are are generated arises by diversifying the neural stem cells at the outset of neural tube formation. So uh, in a very sort of Uh, coarse way, we can describe this as sort of a two-axis system, uh, the head-to-tail axis or rostrocaudal axis, as well as the dorsal-ventral axis or uh, back-to-stomach axis. And depending on where neural stem cells lie within this neural tube along these two axes, they get patterned with various transcription factors that essentially diversify their differentiation uh, trajectory and give rise to the immense level of uh, neuronal and glial diversity that exists within the central nervous system. Ultimately, depending on where you are along that neural tube, those neural stem cells are specified to give rise to particular progeny, and those progeny then migrate radially to expand the neural tube, uh, giving rise to brain and spinal cord and retina tissue structures. And depending on uh, the specification of the neural stem cells and the progeny they create, you get different tissue cyto architectures that form and ultimately link together to give you the function of the central nervous system. So that was a very brief uh, overview of the CNS, but it informs uh, sort of our approach to trying to uh, recapitulate uh, CNS morphogenesis in a dish. And ultimately, uh, we'd like to do this in a very controlled format using uh, engineered culture systems to apply these various cues that can regulate morphogenesis in a controlled manner. And so we've broken it up into sort of four different parts. Uh, first, we'd like to be able to generate these single neural tube-like structures. Second, we'd like to be able to have radio expansion of our tissue um, as the neural stem cells within that neuroepithelial layer uh, give rise to progeny that then migrate radially. Um, we'd also like to be able to pattern our neural stem cells along those two major axes, dorsal-ventral and rostral-caudal axis, and then eventually the central nervous system will get large enough that you will need vascularization. Um, so this is one thing that sort of is is a nuance: is that the central nervous system, when it first forms, and a lot of this morphogenetic patterning and morphogenesis is occurring, it's it's largely avascular, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, but eventually it reaches a, a size where you need to have. Uh, the uh, blood vessels come in, and so in standard culture, you're limited in being able to recapitulate uh, these different aspects of morphogenesis. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do is apply um, or, or integrate biomaterials, engineered biomaterials, with pluripotent stem cells, so that we can control and 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 um, reproducibly create these different aspects of morphogenesis. And today, um, while we've made progress in all these areas, I'm just going to talk about one particular area, and this is the area where we made our first progress, which is being able to uh, take standard uh, neural stem cell derivation protocols um, that give you sort of a plateful of uh, these uh, rosette structures, is what we call this in in vitro culture, that mimic the uh, um, polarization and shape of the neural tu- uh, cross section of the neural tube and control the induction of these structures such that we can get um, spatial and temporal control over where they occur in our dish and put them in an array format. And uh, we've actually started now to apply that tool uh, to try to look at um, neurological disorders. So, Uh, First, we had to generate neural stem cells. Uh, Being engineers, we wanted to do this in a uh, controlled manner, uh, defining as much as the culture system as we could. So when I first got to Wisconsin, James Thompson, uh, his group had... Um, figured out how to derive pluripotent stem cells using chemically defined media, as well as a chemically defined culture substrate. Uh, We basically took that system and said, well, how can we differentiate ourselves into uh, the neuroepithelial cells or the neural stem cells? Um, And we tried sort of basic protocols, a control condition, which just removes the factors that maintain pluripotency, as well as inhibition of single SMAD and dual SMAD. These were two protocols um, that uh, were published at that time. Dual SMAD inhibition is widely used used as well. What we saw when we did this is that all of our experimental groups seem to uh, very easily uh, cause the cells to differentiate into uh, Pax6 positive, Sox2 positive uh, neural stem cell cultures in a very homogeneous manner. So Pax6 is a transcription factor that's deterministic for uh, defining the neural stem cell phenotype at this early time point in differentiation. And you can see we can get plates full of these rosette-like structures uh, that form uh, this polarized incatherin, which is a cell-to-cell contact uh, uh, ligand uh, and receptor. Um, And so this was very surprising to us. Um, Turns out that when we dug into this a little further, uh, the defined conditions in which you maintain the pluripotent stem cells allows this transition to occur without the need to inhibit any type of uh, uh, SMAD signaling that can be caused by TGF-beta or BMP Uh, proteins or factors that are in your media. And so that was interesting, but now we had a a very defined way to generate uh, four brain neural stem cells. Um, And so when we differentiate them, they form these, uh, uh, you know, wells full of of rosettes that form spontaneously. They do this in 2D as well as in 3D. And uh, we basically said, well, what's different about our cultures that limits us from getting a single rosette? And we looked at the size scale of the neural tube when it forms and made a very simple hypothesis. Well, what if we take our culture and shrink it down to the same size scale? Uh, Can we then induce a single rosette formation in order to mimic a single transverse slice of the developing neural tube? So in order to do that, we use uh, tried and true technology uh, developed by George Whitesides in order to micro-pattern uh, self-assembled monolayers of alkene thiols on gold substrates. The alkene thiol, the sulhydryl group on that molecule, uh, spontaneously uh, b- forms a bond with uh, pristine gold, and the alkyl groups, uh, through van der Waals interactions, align themselves. And now your surface chemistry is defined what, by whatever the omega group is on the end of the alkane thiol. You can make that omega group a uh, polymerization initiator and make this substrate even more stable by grafting polyethylene glycol brushes from the surface. Polyethylene glycol is the most non-fouling material that we have to date. And so uh, by doing that, you can make your surface essentially non-fouling, meaning that it won't absorb proteins and therefore won't uh, allow cells to adhere to it. Now this is useful because you can combine uh, the formation of your self-assembled monolayers with microcontact printing in order to make uh, microscale patterns of your self-assembled monolayer and subsequently your grafted polyethylene glycol brush on your substrate. And so here we have 300 micron circle uh, array um, where we have polyethylene glycol that is grown. We've used uh, 3D FTR, FTIR in order to show that we have the peg brushes in those specific regions And if you reverse that pattern such that you have peg brushes everywhere except for those 300 micron diameter uh, circular arrays, uh, then you can seed uh, or coat the surface. Uh, with an extra matrix protein, such as laminin or matrigel, it will only adsorb where the polyethylene glycol brush is not. And then when you seed uh, cells onto it, they will only attach in the areas where you do not have the polyethylene glycol brush. And this gives you a well-defined surface uh, for controlling where the cells would adhere and ultimately the morphology of the, or the footprint of the uh, tissue that you would create. Even in uh, culture media, uh, where you have uh, high serum proteins, uh, this uh, platform can still maintain the control over cell um, adhesion and micropatterning for upwards of two months, actually. So this gave us a substrate that we could control the morphology of, um, or or at least the footprint of the tissue that we were creating uh, in our culture dishes down to the uh, 100 to 500 micron scale or length scale at which uh, early CNS development occurs. So we then went back uh, and looked at our differentiation protocol, saw that we started to get PAC 6 uh, induction as shown here in the red by day three, really started to have polarization occur with uh, incadherin around day four. And so we did a simple experiment of taking our cells at day four and seeing them onto the micro pattern uh, culture substrate and just culturing them out for different periods of time to see if we could reform these polarized neuroepithelial structures. Indeed, this does occur uh, actually about four days after uh, I'm sorry five days after you see the, the cells onto the micropattern substrate, you then got formation of these rosette tissues. at the 300 micron diameter circular micro we saw that we could actually generate uh, single rosettes, but we could only do this about 30 percent of the time in that particular experiment. And so we wanted to see if we could increase the efficiency of generating these singularly polarized uh, neurorosette tissues. Um, And so we tried seeding at different time points um, along the differentiation protocol. uh, And we saw that no matter when we seeded the cells uh, on day two or day six, after um, five days, they basically formed these polarized neuroepithelial uh, structures on top of the micropattern regions. Uh, So that led us to our first sort of um, (laughs) protocol, uh, which was that basically after five days um, of seeding, you're differentiating uh, neural neuroculture, you can generate uh, SOX2-PAC6 neuroepithelial tissues uh, with high density. And our question became, is there a morphology or a, you know, a geometry in which we can uh, engineer this micropattern such that it would you know give us 90 uh, or upwards of 80 to 90% efficiency in generating these singularly polarized rosette structures that we could use as models of a transverse slice of the neural tube? And so we did what any good engineer would and just tried sort of a, a spectrum of shapes uh, and sizes uh, corresponding to the surface area of the uh, circular micro patterns at 200, 300 and 400 micron diameters. Uh, when we ran this experiment, we saw that across the board, as you decrease the size of the micro pattern, you increased uh, the number of micro patterns that gave you a singularly polarized rosette tissue. So the red here indicates uh, the number or the percentage of micro patterns that um, had a single polarization, whereas the green represents the percentage that had more than one polarization, and the blue represents the percentage that did not have a polarization after five days of growth on these micro pattern cultures. Um, but the numbers here were too low to really differentiate between the shapes. So we partnered with a uh, computer scientist um, or a couple of computer scientists actually who do image processing and and sort of large data uh, machine learning algorithms in order to make an algorithm that could take um, an image of an incadherent stained uh, neuroepithelial tissue, identify the polarized incadherent regions, and then read out various parameters of those polarized regions to let us know if we had a single rosette, what was the size, um, and various uh, morphological aspects of it. And doing this allowed us to increase our um, analysis by the order of magnitude and started to show that the circular micro patterns seemed to be optimal at the 200 uh, micron diameter scale in order to generate uh, single rosettes. Um, And so we then, uh, when when doing this, we were still only about able to get about 40 to 50% of our rosettes to be the singular neuroepithelial, singly polarized neuroepithelium. And so we went back and tried one more perturbation to the protocol, which was either seeding um, at day four or seeding uh, outright onto the micropattern substrate in order to uh, conduct the entire neural induction on the micropattern substrate. And when we did this, we saw that seeding um, at day negative one essentially allowed more cells to accumulate on the micropatterns. And that led to a significant increase um, in the uh, percentage of, of, of micropattern tissues that had a singly polarized cytoarchitecture, uh, architecture, upwards of 80%. Uh, when we do this now, we're upwards of 90% on average. And this seems to be corresponding to the fact that you have more cells on the substrate when you seed uh, the pluripotent stem cells at day one versus not. And what I've been showing you up until now in all these images are confocal slices, so you can see the polarized ring quite well. But what I want to make sure you understand is we see these microarrays as a monolayer. But very quickly, because they're proliferative cells, they can't grow in the xy direction, so they grow in the z direction. And they become hemispherical disk where the polarized uh incadherin uh creates basically a vesicle inside of that hemispherical disc um and uh so you have sort of a mini organoid that has formed uh on uh these micropatterned arrays so up until now, I've been talking mostly about forebrain uh, neural stem cells. Now, as I mentioned before, the CNS is quite diverse, um, and so uh, there are many different regions along the rostrocaudal axis where the neural tube forms. And so, we wanted to see if we could look at other regions uh, along that rostrocaudal axis, particularly in the spinal cord region, in order to see if we could do the same type of uh, micro-pattern, single singular rosette emergence protocol. And the posterior central nervous system is quite diversified by a codelinear commensurate expression of these Hox transcription factors. You have 39 of these genes uh, in your human genome. And uh, they come on and specify whether the neural stem cells are patterned to various regions of the hindbrain and the spinal cord, as shown here, that diversifies the differentiation trajectory to give rise to neuronal subtypes that only occur within those various regions. This is important because the Hox um, uh, the Hox gene code basically is present in all bilaterian species and is responsible for segmenting along the head-to-tail axis in all bilaterian species. Up. Um, and in particular in the human, it's responsible for mapping the projections of the central nervous system to various tissues um, of other germ layers. And if the hoxes are deleted, for example, or mutated, then you have serious deformations uh, that occur. If it's deleted in the fly, for example, then you delete entire body segments uh, of the fly. So to make a very long story short, uh, we basically came up with a program, uh, a differentiation protocol following what was known in developmental biology, particularly the theories of uh, Kate story um, over in the UK, in order to take pluripotent stem cells, differentiate them to a primitive streak uh, cell type, which we call neuromesoderm progenitors, and as long as they're in the media conditions, uh, Wnt, FGF, and GDF11, uh, that uh, allow maintenance of this cell type, they will start to express their Hox genes. Um, as soon as you add on Wnt, they will start to express their Hox genes, and they will express them in a manner that is collinear and combinatorial, just like the axis extension that occurs within the normal uh, uh, growing embryo. And then we can differentiate them to uh, neural stem cells or neuropathial cells by simply transitioning to a media that contains retinoic acid. And this allows us to create a spectrum of neural stem cells that uh, regionally correspond to different uh, rostral caudal positions along uh, the posterior central nervous system. So doing this, uh, we decided to try to shoot for cervical spinal uh, neuropathelial cells. Uh, and we saw that we could micropower them. Uh, we could get some singularly polarized rosettes. Uh, the standing here indicates that they are motor neuron progenitors to indicate uh, that they are indeed in the spinal cord region. Uh, the Hox profiling shows that they express Hox genes uh, that are in the spinal cord. But when we looked at the percentage of tissues that gave us singularly polarized rosettes, we saw that uh, that percentage or the efficiency decreased significantly when we tried to micropattern them on 200 micron diameter uh, circles. And this was perplexing to us because these were neural stem cells, just like the forebrain ones that we had generated, but they were neural stem cells that were regionalized to the posterior central nervous system or the spinal cord. And so frustrated, we simply went back and profiled all different sizes of circular patterns uh, to see where the forebrain and spinal cord cells would preferentially give us a singularly polarized uh, rosette structure. Now for the forebrain, uh, we saw again that at the 200 and actually at 250 micron diameter circular patterns, that's the size they prefer to generate this singly polarized neuro rosette structure. However, in the spinal cord tissues, they preferred much smaller micro patterns down to 150 micron diameter micro patterns to get similar efficiencies in singular rosette formation. Now this was perplexing. And so we said, well, is there a difference in the uh, biomechanical properties of these cells, particularly the cell contractility properties that control rosette formation? So we basically added rock inhibitor to the culture, which would limit their ability to um, contract and form the polarized ring. When we did that, we saw that the uh, micropattern size that the forebrain neuropathial cells preferred uh, shifted to the left and decreased the size of micropattern that they would give us single, uh, singly polarized rosettes on. And when we did that for the spinal cord cells, it completely abrogated their ability to form rosettes at any of the micropattern sizes that we tested. Um, And so what this told us is that even though these are neural stem cells, all uh, neural stem cell populations, their regionalization to the forebrain versus the spinal cord imparts a differential biomechanical uh, characteristic to those cells and their ability to form these polarized rosette structures. Uh, and in a hand-waving fashion, this may be one of the reasons why the ventricles in your, in your forebrain are much larger than the canal in your spinal cord. Um, but this was just an interesting phenomenon um, that explained why we had to use different size micropatterns in order to create efficient uh, singular rosette em- emergence using uh, forebrain versus spinal neural stem cells. So having uh, sort of shown that we can generate these, uh, you know, uh, control the emergence of these rosette structures in order to get singly polarized uh, rosette tissues, essentially now we have spatial temporal control over where these rosettes should form. We can show where they should form in our culture dish. And that predictive power should allow us to understand if that rosette formation is being disrupted in any way, shape or form. And we're using this rosette formation as an analog to actual uh, neural tube formation. So the question became could we use sort of a bioengineered human neuro rosette array, uh, standardizing that process and uh, looking at rosette formation along different portions of the rostrocaudal axis of the uh, central nervous system in order to become a screening tool? Um, and we think that that could potentially be useful. Um, and the reason why we think it could be useful is because there are uh, congenital birth defects that uh, affect neural tube formation. And we know just from anecdotal evidence of doing this that neural formation is very sensitive to factors that affect uh, neural induction of human pluripotent stem cells, cell viability or proliferation of pluripotent stem cells or neural stem cells, proper biomechanical uh, function of these cells, and any factors that will affect these sort of uh, signaling pathways that are required to generate these cells and the rosette that they form. So looking at uh, the neural tube defect literature, um, and this is going to be closure of uh, the developing neural plate. uh, So it closes at the midbrain hindbrain barrier and sort of zips up to the forebrain and to the spinal cord. This occurs within the first four weeks post-conception, so sometimes even before people know they're pregnant. And this can go awry. Um, you can have neurotube tube defects that occur at any point along the head to tail axis of uh, the central nervous system. Now, when this occurs in the forebrain, um, it exposes the brain uh, to amniotic fluid that causes degeneration of the tissue. And that is embryonic lethal. Um, that particular disorder is called anencephaly. However... Uh, probably more well-known amongst the late public is when this occurs in the posterior central nervous system. Uh, This again causes degeneration of that tissue, uh, but that is not embryonic lethal and leads to the disorder known as spinal bifida. Now, neurotic defects as a class are quite prevalent. Uh, They're the second most prevalent leading congenital malformation, only uh, second to heart defects. Um, So this is a useful um, uh, uh, disorder to try to go after and understand better why this occurs. Now, the only known uh, prophylactic treatment for preventing a neural tube defect is by using periconceptional uh, folic acid treatment. So um, uh, if, if uh, you get pregnant, uh, you go to your doctor, they're going to prescribe to you uh, daily supplementation of folic acid. Um, and the reason for that is because in a clinical trial from mothers who were previously affected uh, with neural tube uh, defect pregnancies, uh, it was shown that periconceptional folic acid dietary supplementation could reduce the reoccurrence of a neurotube defect in subsequent pregnancies by about 70%. So, because of that study, actually, governments around the world um, have adopted fortification of their grain products with folic acid so that their entire population had folic acid supplementation. Um, And this, uh, as tracked by the CDC, caused a significant decrease in the rate of neurotube defects. However, that decrease is only about uh, 30 to 40%. Um, And so it's maintained or stabilized um, as still being a very prevalent congenital defect, um, affecting about 3,000 pregnancies per year uh, in the United States alone. And that rate goes up as you go outside the United States. Now, this is a perplexing disorder because uh, the factors that can cause neurative defects can be genetic predisposition um, uh, in the parents, um, as well as uh, environmental factors. So there are numerous uh, drugs uh, that are FDA approved, EPA approved um, that had to be restricted uh, because they could cause an increased risk of neurative Defects and there are also, uh, uh, environmental toxins that we can be exposed to that can cause, uh, an increased risk for neurotube defects. So there's a complex interplay between genetic predisposition and these environmental factors that leads to neurotube defects. And because of that complexity, this is an ideal type of scenario for, uh, creating a screening tool that could be used to explore the ideology of neurotube defects. Now, in particular, uh, as I mentioned before, there have been FDA-approved drugs, EPA-approved uh, chemicals uh, that were used uh, that had to be either canceled or restricted um, uh, because of their um, uh, discovery that they increased the prevalence of neurotube defects in exposed populations. And this is, you know, even it's still a contemporary issue. For example, the antiretroviral HIV therapy, Delucravir, um is... Uh, known to cause an increase in neurotube defect risk. Um, it's still used because of its effectiveness in preventing HIV, um, but it's not well or it's still quite you know putative as to whether um, it has a direct effect on causing an increase in neurotube defects uh, despite the effect that was shown in epidemiological studies. Mm-hmm. And so a tool that can look and screen for factors that cause neurotube defects, both on the environmental and the genetic side, would be useful for regulatory decisions as well as drug development pipelines um, broadly. So we spent some time uh, figuring out how to make this assay off the shelf, meaning that we could create uh, frozen cell banks um, that we can validate for the ability to create, uh, you know, uh, good neuro rosette uh, cultures. Uh, we could then uh, see those frozen cell banks directly onto our rosette array substrates. Um, and in six days, they would form an array of neuro rosettes. Um, and you could expose them during that process to various chemicals uh, and use a single image uh, readout uh, in order to figure out if you had affected cell viability, proliferation, uh, morphogenetic patterning, neural induction, or some abnormality of the actual rosette that forms. And you could do this using automated uh, image analysis pipelines. So this creates a, a scalable screening pipeline for using this tool in order to look at things like neural tube defects. So that's exactly what we have started to do. Um, we started to uh, basically run our NeuroReset array, uh, looking primarily at forebrain for now. We, we just got a grant to look at other regions of the central nervous system as well, exposing our uh, developing uh, NeuroReset arrays to chemicals over the uh, five days um, of the protocol. And we started off looking at uh, dimethyl sulfoxide, simply because if you're doing uh, drug library screening, they're typically dissolved in DMSO, so we need to make sure that our assay uh, could perform at least levels of DMSO that would be useful for screening. Uh, We looked at glycolic acid uh, as a negative control. And then we looked at compounds such as valproic acid and methotrexate, which are used clinically, but restricted for use uh, for pregnant females because of their known uh, uh, risks uh, for neural tube defects. And also a pesticide that has been uh, correlated with um, uh, the high occurrence of neural tube defects in in the exposed populations. So when we looked at dimethyl sulfoxide, uh, we got sort of dose response curves, and I'm just going to orient you here because the next couple of slides will look like this. On the uh, far left side, we have uh, cells per tissue, and whether we have inhibition in the cell number per tissue at the end of uh, the rosette formation process. Uh, the next graph is going to look at percent of cells that are Pax6. This allows us to examine uh, whether our cells are being induced into a neural stem cell fate. Uh, Then we have the percentage of tissues that give us a singular rosette emergence, and we can get nice dose response curves there. And then we have an overlay of the three metrics to basically see if there is an increased sensitivity in one metric versus the other two. Um, so this is sort of our neurozet array profile that we can generate. And as you can see here with DMSO, we can go up to uh, 0.1% uh, dilution uh, of DMSO volume by volume, which is great because that means we can do thousand-fold dilutions and still get good rosette formation on our assay. Uh, interestingly enough, when we do exceed that, the rosette formation is what suffers first. It's statistically more senif- uh, sensitive uh, than uh, the other two metrics. Now, when we looked at glycolic acid, uh, we saw no dose response, um, and so this was was good because we shouldn't have one for just increasing uh, uh, the glycolic acid levels in our uh, array. However, when we looked at valproic acid, um, which is a well-known histone D-acetylase um, and well-known to cause neuro- an increased risk for neurotube defects when treating epilepsy patients or acute mania, mania patients. We did see a nice dose response, uh, where we had uh, increased in, in inhibition along all three parameters. Uh, interestingly enough, the increase in uh, in the rosette uh, inhibition, uh, rosette formation inhibition metric, essentially was the most sensitive aspect of our um, of our analysis, and this uh, corresponded to sort of organ magnitude uh, ranges that people have seen with other assays as well. Now, with Benamil, uh, we saw, again, nice dose-response curves. It was quite toxic <laughs> in terms of relative concentration uh, in regards to valproic acid. We see similar levels as other people. But here, we actually don't see an increase in specificity um, or in sensitivity to the rosette or, um, uh, metric, basically indicating that this is, is potentially just killing cells. <laughs> and that's causing 100% cell death, um, and that's leading to the lack of rosette formation. So different than valproic acid in its mechanism. Now when we would look at uh, methotrexate. This is an anti-cancer drug, it's quite safe. Um, we actually don't see a 100% cell death. Um, so it, it does inhibit cell death, but only up to about the 50% point. We don't see a significant effect on uh, neural induction or differentiation but we do see a dose response uh, for rosette uh, inhibition. And again, this is the most sensitive metric. Um, And it it goes to show that methotrexate actually is specifically inhibiting rosette formation uh, prior to when it's having any other effects. And this is a well-known factor for methotrexate because it inhibits folic acid metabolism, which as I showed before, was one of the more uh, well-known pathways uh, for uh, preventing Uh, neurotube defect risk is to supplement patients with folic acid. So, methotrexate has a very well-known pathway in inhibiting folic acid metabolism, which therefore causes increased neurotube defect risk. And here we see that is in causing uh, an inhibition of single rosette formation uh, at much lower concentrations than it causes any other effects. And so, because there was such a specific pathway for methotrexate, we then went back to see if we could supplement with a folic acid Uh, um, substitute, which essentially acts downstream of methotrexate or the enzyme that methotrexate inhibits in the folic acid pathway in order to rescue the dose response that we saw. And indeed, uh, as shown here in the circles, you have the untreated uh, condition, and in the um, squares, you have the supplementation with uh, 5-MTHFA. And you can see that we shift the curve to the right when we supplement with the uh, 5-MTHFA or the folic acid uh, substitute basically rescuing uh, the effects that we see when increasing uh, or exposing our arrays to methotrexate. So this is basically showing that our array is, um, or the effect of methotrexate on our array is happening through a very specific pathway uh, analogous to what is known to occur in vivo. So we, of course are you know, starting to screen more and more compounds as we can get funding to do so, um, uh, that uh, would show the utility of our assay for neurotube defects. Um, and we also think that it might be useful for broad developmental neurotoxicity screening because the rosette formation process is so sensitive, um, at least in our hands, to uh, perturbations from various chemicals that we put into the media. And so we have an uh, ongoing collaboration with an agrochemical company where uh, we've done some screening of uh, various compounds, uh, some that we added, which are shown in the white boxes here under compound name. These are standard compounds that you would find in any sort of developmental neurotoxicity library. And we also have some that uh, were added by the uh, agrochemical company, company, and most of those are uh, pesticides. Um, And here we're showing that our array can, uh, we did this at a single concentration level, so 10 micromolar, just because that was the amount of money we have for the project. Um, But we're showing here that we can detect uh, essentially um, uh, hits for a number of these compounds, uh, which allowed us to calculate uh, a very sort of basic sensitivity and specificity level um, of 100% and 96% for our assay in this very small limited library. So those numbers will change as we continue to screen more and more compounds. But what this... Uh, um, uh, partnership allowed us to do is learn how to run our assay, um, which was great. Um, we also uh, saw that our assay, uh, because we can get very high statistical numbers, um, so in each well of a, of, of a, a well plate, we use a 12-well plate for now, we're scaling up to a 96-well plate, um, we can get basically uh, 40, 400 to 1,000 tissues in a 12-well plate. We only analyze uh, 40 of those. So we have an in a 40 for each well, and then we do that in biological triplicate. So our uh, statistics that we pull, off of this array are super strong and allows our assay to be very sensitive to any perturbations in rosette formation. And so we have uh, in the red here indicated sort of positive hits. That's where we see, you know, a greater than 25% decrease in the metric that we're analyzing. Again, cell viability, neural differentiation, and single rosette emergence. We added another one for rosette area um, because that seemed to uh, have a, a, um, a an effect in, or that was affected um, in tissues where, or for compounds where we didn't necessarily see a decrease in single rosettes as well. Um, but we also um, saw that our assay could pick up very sensitive perturbations uh, where we saw less than a 25% decrease, but it was still statistically significant due to the fact that we have such high numbers coming off of our array. Um, uh, uh, assay. And so we sort of indicated those as warnings because we wouldn't call those hits because there's such a small decrease, um, but they do indicate that potentially there is a, an effect there. And so basically from this, we saw that our assay in this very small screen has good sensitivity, good specificity um, for factors that affect uh, the CNS development. Uh, for example, thalidomide uh, is a very well, well-known developmental toxicant, um, but it actually doesn't have neurodevelopmental uh, toxicity. It affects uh, the skeletal system in its formation. And so we saw a, a warning sign here with cell viability um, at 10 micromolar, but we saw no effects on actual rosette formation. Um, we also did compounds where uh, we, because we were worried about you know the lack of metabolism in our assay, we, we simulate metabolism using the S9 liver fraction, uh, doing just a simple predigestion before adding the compound to our assay. And we saw that uh, for several compounds, uh, where we didn't see any effects, such as uh, ciproconazole, such as uh, um, uh, before metabolism. Once we metabolize those compounds, we did see a direct effect on um, rosette formation um, and neural differentiation uh, in, in, in the case of ciproconazole. Also, uh, we saw factors like chlorpyrifos, um, which is thought to is a well-known uh, neurodevelopmental toxin, but is thought to inhibit uh, neuronal processes, uh, or the firing and, syn- and synapse formation of neurons. Um, and we saw that that actually uh, gave us a slight hit in our assay prior to metabolism. Um, but once we did the metabolism, gave us a significant hit at the uh, neuroset formation stage. Um, and so that was uh, surprising that for a compound that's thought to act much later in development, we could also see the toxicity in our early developmental assay. And we had other compounds like verapamil, this is the last one I'll highlight, (laughs) which is known for its cardiotoxicity. Um, It affects uh, ion channels that are present in cardiac cells, Um, uh, and so it's it's flagged as a developmental toxicant, but it's not a developmental neurotoxicant because it doesn't affect uh, neural pathways. So this is just some of the stuff that we're starting to learn about our assay. Um, We think it's going to be very sensitive uh, to developmental neurotoxins, um, particularly pointing out... um, uh, some neurotoxicity that maybe hadn't been seen before. This again is at a 10 micromolar level. So uh, ideally, we like to do dose response curves uh, to make sure that we're hitting uh, uh, physiologically relevant concentrations. For some of these, that's true. For other ones, it's it's not. Um, and we have another a number of compounds that just outright killed cells, uh, as shown by the compounds that you know just just having a significant effect on cell viability. But we couldn't measure anything else after that because it killed all the cells. Those, of course, need to be done at lower concentrations as well. So, hopefully, what I've shown you in this talk is that um, being able to bioengineer uh, biomimetic and reproducible morphogenesis of organoids is quite powerful. In our particular case, we're looking at uh, central nervous system or neural organoids. Because that allows you to understand in a spatial temporal manner how your cell culture should behave, how the tissue should form, and therefore, much like uh, a model organism, such as a mouse, you can understand or analyze when that is perturbed. Um, and and that is, is very powerful for understanding and investigating the etiology of various diseases, as well as uh, for toxicological aspects. And uh, we plan to use this in a personalized medicine approach to discover uh, preventative uh, therapies that can be used particularly with neurotube defects, as a prophylactic to prevent or decrease neurotube defect risk. Now, this was just um, the initial sort of uh, success that we've had in, in what is likely going to be <laughs> the outline of my lab for years to come <laughs> of, of controlling neural organoid morphogenesis um, uh, by being able to standardize rosette formation, being able to look at this at all different uh, head-to-tail uh, regions of the developing central nervous system, and we're not the only ones in this space. Uh the lab of uh Ali Brimilu at Rockefeller uh with Eric Sega, uh they're also uh creating neuroloid models, um, they have uh models as well. Um Fu at Michigan is creating embryoid models. Um so this field of sort of um uh synthetic embryology um is 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 being birthed um and should be very useful for looking at diseases in a human uh genomic and physiological context. And so with that, um, I'd like to thank all of our funding sources um, that have allowed us to do this work. And the people in BOLD here have contributed to this work um, and, and collaborators, as well as former students and current students. Um, I don't do anything in the lab anymore, so <laughs> this is all their work. Um, so I'd just like to thank them for that and our funding agencies. And with that, I will take questions. That's
0: great. Thanks so much, Randolph. Um, really quite elegant. Um, while we're waiting, maybe I'll just... Uh Pose a few few questions that uh, that occurred to me I, it 's a very elegant system, and as a developmental biologist I, I find it intriguing to potentially watch development uh, happen in front of your eyes uh, apart from looking as you have so far at um, how the neural tube reacts to various perturbagens. Have you followed this neural tube uh, system through development, let it, let it continue to develop, and do you actually start seeing various kinds of subtypes of neurons develop, and then maybe even glial cells develop, and neural activity and circuitry start forming if you let it go beyond uh, what you were talking about now?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, on the micropattern uh, platform that we're showing you here, um, if you just let them grow, they'll eventually become spheroidal enough where they'll just pop off. <laughs> and so they'll make very uniform uh, neuroorganoid uh, spheroids. And if you let them grow out um, following standard protocols that are out there from PASCA and and Knoblish Lab, Lancaster, um, then they'll form standard neuroorganoids. Um, you'll get the cadre of neuronal cells that form. If you're in the forebrain, you'll get the cortical neurons. You get the cadre of glial cells that arise, um, and they will start to have spontaneous um, activity within those within those cells, so yeah we've done that um, uh, just to make sure our cells were were what we think they are
0: <laughs> right will they extend all the way to start obviously neurogenesis comes first, but then do you actually start seeing various glial cells start forming just as you might see in development
1: yeah, um, after the neurogenesis phase, you get astrocytes um, or GF, Gfat positive cells that start to form. The radial glia are there from the early on uh, outset, um, but then the uh, the I guess standard astrocytes uh, start to arise. If you take them out long enough, we actually haven't taken them out long enough because it's it's you know a two to three month protocol. You start to get oligodendrocytes as other people have shown.
0: Right, and will you actually start seeing some mi- some lamination and also migration if you? Let it move out.
1: Yeah. So they, they refer to it as pseudo stratification. Um, because, uh, the fr- when you get these rosettes sh- that form within that aggregate, um, the progeny will migrate radially. Um, and then you get sort of a layering of your, 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 uh, neuronal subtypes. If you're doing corticogenesis, then you get standard corticogenesis in its inside out manner that forms within these, uh, spheroids that you now have sort of floating around, uh, in, in your system. Um, so the the normal process of corticogenesis uh, when you go to other regions of the cNS uh, the temporal manner in which these cells uh, arise or a sequence uh, is largely recapitulated within these organoids
0: great uh, in addition to looking at um, molecular changes, molecular perturbations then and then obviously the neuroanatomical aspects, uh, are you able to to assay function in some way, either through uh, calcium imaging or through even electrophysiology or things of that sort, MEA? or
1: Yeah. So from an engineering aspect, uh, that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> and so you can start to look at function um, as uh, people um, uh, like the... Um, Allison Mortry's lab at UCSD has done. Um uh, putting them on MEAs. You can use calcium managing to look at the function. The question that we've always had um, is the physiological uh, normalcy of that function. So um, if you aren't controlling uh, very well the cytoarchitecture architecture that forms, then the connections that form between these cells, how mimetic are those and the actual signals that you're measuring is, is sort of an, an outline question in our head. Um, Now, doing this in the 3D organoids that form is challenging, right? Um, Because of their size um, and the post hoc analysis. We actually are trying to explore, you know, making de novo slice cultures, essentially. Um, And that would allow for interrogation of those tissues uh, using standard uh, focal microscopy. Um, And so it could be tracked a little easier without some uh, more labor post hoc analysis and, and methods. Um, so that's a route that we're uh, looking into um, versus uh, trying to do everything in 3D, although we still have our
0: projects in 3D as well, or in,
1: in suspended 3D, shall I say. Uh,
0: some questions are starting to now come in through the, uh, through the Q&A function. And uh, Ross Henderson asks uh, uh, what, he, what he calls a very broad spectrum, I guess, more philosophical question. And he was wondering... Whether do you envision doing any of this modeling in silico, basically envisioning tissue culture uh, 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 tissue on chips, and then combining that with known signal transduction pathways and doing some neurocomputing to, to figure out what might be going on?
1: Yeah, this is fascinating. I don't have the skill set to do that. <laughs> but, um, others do for sure. Um, for example, Tom Knitsen at the EPA, um, they have a whole, uh, division that is uh that is looking at synthetic embryology in silico and so um we have been talking with them um we actually had an EPA grant that sort of helped fund some of this work mm-hmm. at Wisconsin um and have continued to to talk and with Tom uh to try to combine that that's exactly one of the things that we we would like to do um that would require a partnership and we're happy to partner with people um to do that uh the computational modeling side is is not my forte um but uh we'd love to to work with people to do that all right. Another
0: question uh, kind of speculates, um, could you possibly let your z-axis really take over so that you could start actually modeling the spinal cord or the spinal cord in development? Is that feasible?
1: Uh, so yes is the answer to that, um, but it's not the z-axis in the way the question is posed. Um, so we have a very interesting finding, um, that essentially, and I, I won't say how we do it, but i essentially say the result, <laughs> which is we can, uh, biomanufacture neuroepithelial tubes. Um, and when I say biomanufacture, I mean biomanufacture. Um, and it builds from this micropattern technology, um, essentially allowing them to go in the Z axis to a degree to the point where, um, they actually close over and make a, a tube-like structure. Um, and so it's, it's interesting how that works, um, uh, but we should be uh, submitting a manuscript for that pretty shortly.
0: Well, that sounds pretty exciting. Have you ever tried to uh, uh, juxtapose your neural tubes with, for example, other kinds of tissue, for example, muscle or, or cardiac or, or, or anything else? Are there anything else? Uh, to
1: try to create uber systems? Yeah, so we, we have uh, collaborated uh, with people, particularly to add our cells um, to, for example, a, a motor neuron to skeletal muscle uh, type model um, with Penny Gilbert up at Toronto. Um, we're currently collaborating uh, with Michael Mort Tulane to connect uh, dorsal ganglia, to our central nervous system model tissues. Um, and so we're moving in that direction. Um, it, it always has to be guided by a very good question to ask because <laughs> those, those systems get complex, of course. Um, but yeah, we, we partner regularly uh, with others to try to fuse our, our, our tissues with um, other tissues that they would normally connect with um, in, in normal human development.
0: Have you ever made any of these um, mini neural tube models from, for example, IPS lines that that come from patient or genetic diseases or from patients with diseases? And what do you see, if so? Yeah, we, we haven't done that to a
1: large extent. We have done iPSCs for these Rosetta rays, um, and they they largely work in the same fashion. Uh, you might have to tweak a little bit the protocol depending on the, the background um, of the the pluripotent stem cells. But uh, for um, actually creating genetic disease models, so we're, we're going down that that route now. Um, Our initial push was to standardize the assay, which uh, you would like to do with one cell line so it can be used as a a standardized tool. Um, We're now expanding out to uh, recapitulate that with iPSC derived or patient cell types that have neurotube defects. We're also doing uh, gene editing on our sort of workhorse cell line that we use for the assay uh, in order to add some of the genetic mutations that uh, correspond with neurotube defects as well. So we're going in those directions. We haven't done a ton of it yet.
0: Right. Have there been any, uh, any findings that have surprised you in terms of screening for drugs? So, in other words, drugs that weren't suspected of having uh, neurotoxicity in the embryo, but you screened, you found something, it, it was a revelation, maybe you even uh, duplicated it in a rodent and found that, in fact, it really was a, a neurotoxic element. Any, any surprises there?
1: <laughs> so we've had some surprises. We haven't gone as far as to do the rodent study yet, just because of the sort of um, uh, uh, immaturity of the technology, basically. We just haven't had time to do all that. <laughs> but um, it's, it has uh, become interesting when we talk to toxicologists. Uh, so when you find, you know, and, and you know, the EPA, I think, has, has, is now starting to publish some things with this as well. Um, that these human novel alternative methods, right, the, that's sort of the classification that they're called, um, when they find uh, uh, hits that essentially did not show up in the animal model, um, which is what, you know, toxicologists have a ton of data on, how do you interpret that? <laughs> and so there are some efforts to say, well, can you make your NAMs from the animal cells in order to prove that they, they do, you know, properly predict things. Um, and, but it's really still an open question as to how that should be predicted. Um, because of course there are differences, significant differences in development between model organisms and humans, uh, not just at the genomic level, but you know, different cell types that arise, uh, different structures that arise, different placement of structures anatomically. Um, so uh, it's it's still an open question. Uh, we've tried to find cases where there are, you know, well-known epidemiological studies in humans, <laughs> um, clinical studies that have shown that that, that is a useful predictor um, in order to try to use that for our assay. Um, you also run into sort of the pharmacokinetic aspect of it. So every compound is toxic at a different concentration, right, <laughs> at a particular concentration. But is that going to be relevant for the exposure of, for example, a developing human uh, in, in the womb? Um, and so that's another area that needs more investigation to be able to better predict what are those concentrations that are relevant for looking for toxicity, Um And uh, so that's another reason probably why we see some toxicity in our assays that are never seen uh, in vivo, um, uh, because they're either metabolized or they never occur at that concentration uh,
0: uh, in the actual developing embryo. Great. Do do you think your system uh, could, in addition to looking for the neurotoxicity of drugs, do you you think it's well Positioned to perhaps look at various environmental perturbagens, so not just so obviously the environmental perturbogens that are in our world, but maybe even some infectious diseases that are known to be neurotoxic, CMV, toxo, um, uh, Zika.
1: Yeah, um, so I think Zika would definitely show up in our system. We haven't tried it, um, and but anything that's going to affect uh, in our particular system, which is very early in, in neural development, so anything that's going to affect the the formation of neural tubes, um, uh, the neural tube structure in the early embryo, we think is has a high likelihood of showing a, a hit in our system, um, and so that would include uh, Zika, for example. Um, uh, other. It depends on where other viral uh, pathogens are going to cause their effects, um, but um, if it affects the, the neuropathial cells, then we think it should show up in our system.
0: Yeah. And I guess the, the last question would be, is it your hope or expectation that this may become an FDA-approved assay? That, uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
1: So that, that's the long-term, uh, goal, um, the, the road to take, right, is to try to make it something that's standardized. Um, so that was our initial, um, uh, uh, sort of effort was can we say that this is not just a, a, a trick that we can do in our lab, but can we make this an off-the-shelf assay that we could ship to other people, have them do it themselves? Um, and so that's what we first started to develop precisely for going in that direction. Can this be a standardized assay? where you can have the cells provided to you, you can have the uh, engineered substrates, and you simply seed it into a well plate and run the assay. Um, And we think that uh, everything that we've done so far shows us that that is definitely possible. Um, And so we'll we'll continue to push in that route. Um, And once we can, I guess, uh, get the high throughput screening aspect of it done, so right now we're translating from... Uh, a 12-well plate to a 96-well plate. Once we can get the 96-well plate done, um, we think it will be very advantageous um, for uh, presenting this to FDA, EPA, and saying, can we start going through the process of a standardized assay?
0: Great. One last question squeaked in under the wire, so I'll pitch it to you. Uh, Are you contemplating any epigenetic studies?
1: Yeah, so neurotube defects in particular um, have a very specific epigenetic uh, etiology, and this is corresponding to the folic acid metabolism pathway specifically. Um, so DNA methylation requires uh, uh, proper function of the folic acid uh, pathway. And so we are thinking about uh, looking at that as well when looking into the etiology of uh, when using the, tube, the, the tool to screen for um, etiological factors of neurotube defects.
0: Well, this has been great, really fascinating, very promising, and an exciting new area for for the regenerative medicine and stem cell field to explore and, and reinforcing how important it is to marry multiple fields together, particularly engineering and regenerative medicine. So thanks a lot, Randolph, and congratulations on some great success, and we'll see you in June. Bye-bye.